So we are starting, we did a series called Good Question, finished it last week. We're starting a book. I like kind of to go back and forth. So we're gonna do a book and it's called First John. If you don't know First John, it is a brilliant book written by John when he's probably 80 years old. And he is the last living disciple of Jesus. All the rest have been killed, martyred, they're dead. He's it. And so this is the end of the first century and he starts to write to churches that he was pastoring that had become confused in their faith. Anyone ever confused by faith? Yeah, pretty common, right? So he writes this book to try to clear up some confusion, to try to give assurance of salvation, to try to give, hey, here's what actually matters, right? So when I read 1 John, here's what it always reminds me of. It reminds me of going and like sitting and talking to your grandpa. So you head over to his house, you knock on the door, takes him a long time to answer it because he's 80. So you just kind of wait, you can hear shuffling in there. Finally, the door opens, you go in, it has that smell. You know the smell? Like a little bit of BO, a little bit of breath. You know breath smell? If you don't, go in our four and five-year-old class after this. It condensates on the windows. You can smell breath in there, right? And kind of clothes that maybe could be washed more frequently. You know that smell. So you go in, you have a seat on his couch, still covered in plastic, protecting that thing. And then he gets you a cup of coffee, black because we drink black coffee here. And then he starts to ask you, son, sweetie, how you doing? Are you happy? First John 1, 4. Do you have joy? Because if you don't know this, son, know this, sweetie, there are things that will rip you off, things that will destroy your joy. Sin is gonna destroy your joy. Lies, errors, untruth are gonna, enjoy, uh, are gonna destroy your joy. And if you believe a lie, guess what? You give it power. Even if it's not true, if you believe it's true, you give it power, right? So he goes through this, beware of fads. And then John gets to his message that he's gonna repeat over and over and over. This is the main thing. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. That if you walk in the light, you won't stumble. That if you walk in the light, you won't be confused. That if you walk in the light, it will protect you from the lies. And so then you sit there and go, well, how do we walk in the light? And he says, by example, that's how. It's like this. When you are trying to do something new, maybe it's a home remodel project, maybe it's changing a bathroom, maybe it's something like that, or you're doing something new on your car that you've never done before. What is the first thing that you do now to figure out how to do it? YouTube, right? Because there's nothing like a, a, you can read about it, but man, it's so much better to watch somebody. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? Like you can learn to do anything on YouTube. I have a video that shows you how to cut a glass in half with a, with a towel. It's unbelievable. It actually works. I tried it. It's amazing, right? There's just, you, you name it. So a bunch of years ago, when my wife was pregnant with Myron, he's our fifth child, we were trying to figure out like, how do we want to do this one? And I'm like, sweetie, it's number five, man. Come on. Piece of cake, right? So do we go to the hospital and do the doctor route? 
Do we do a midwife route? Do we do that birthing house? I don't know if it's still there, but it was out on Redwood Avenue. Um, do we do a home birth? So I just said, Charity, I will watch a YouTube video and I'll do it myself. <laughs> to which she promptly said, no. I know you, no, right? Examples, that's what you need. So what John is going to say over and over and over is this. Listen, Jesus is our example. He is it. Go back to him. I could spend a lot of time introducing this book. I don't want to. I'm gonna sprinkle in the context of this book as we go through it. So we're gonna jump right in. Jump into the deep end. First John chapter one, verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Pay attention to how methodic he is on some things here because he's trying to clarify something. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, right? What's the difference between seen with our eyes and looked upon? And touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen. How many times has he said that? And heard we proclaim also to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Brilliant. You could sum this up in one sentence. Jesus, the God-man who is life, brings koinonia, fancy word, we'll talk about it next week, fellowship. And when you experience this koinonia, we, plural, explode with joy. And that's his whole premise of this book, right? So he is driving for this goal. Because what had happened was a group of people had become, had come into the church and they weren't there to destroy the church. They're not like atheists wanting to tear it all down. They were wanting to improve the church, improve Christianity, improve on Jesus. And there were two main groups within the first hundred years of the church. The first group, they're called the Ebionites. And here's what the Ebionites believed. They went back to the law of Moses. They liked the law. They wanted to do law stuff. That's what they wanted. And they denied, here's what they denied, that Jesus was divine. They denied that he was born of a virgin. They denied that he was God come in the flesh, that he was Emmanuel, right? So that's what they denied. And they took all the feasts and they kept all the laws, and they ate the right kind of food. Most of them were vegetarian, right? So today we would call them like Unitarian Hebrew roots people. Ever met someone like that? Oh, I have. And they'll start telling you like, hey, don't you want to obey everything God has commanded us? Don't you think it's pleasing to God that you and I, that we obey everything that God has commanded? So if you want to please God, you need to keep all of these Old Testament rules. You need to keep all these Old Testament feasts. You need to 
eat only these kinds of food because when you eat only these kinds of food, it brings you closer to God. You're more spiritual. Now, I think diet really matters. I will fiddle with my diet all the time. Like I took a year and I did no sugar and super low carbs just to figure out what does that do. But here's the thing. My diet doesn't make me any closer to God. It has nothing to do with spirituality. It has everything to do with me physically, nothing to do with me spiritual. Do you understand that? So Jesus says, Matthew chapter 15, verse 11. He said, it is not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's not the food you're eating, but what comes out of you. It's what you say that matters spiritually, okay? So I get in these conversations with these people that say, hey, you need to keep these rules and you need to go to church on this day and you need to eat this kind of food because it will bring you closer to God. What I tell them is this, listen, if you wanna be close to God, eat two pounds of M&Ms a day and a six pack of Red Bulls. You will be with him in no time. Try it. Help us all, try it, please, for the love of God, all right? So that's the Ebionites. They denied that Jesus was divine. And that was confusing these Christians, like, oh, he's just, he's just a man? Oh, okay. And then the other group, they were called the Docetics. Docetic means in the Greek to appear. And these guys were on the other side. They said Jesus was 100% God only. He just appeared to look like a man, but he was only spirit. So when Jesus came to earth, when he walked in the sand, he did not leave footprints. So your awesome footprint poster that you got from your grandma that's hanging in your bathroom, yeah, it didn't happen because Jesus didn't leave footprints. Sorry. All right, so he was 100% God only, just appeared to be a man. And when he would eat food because he was just spirit, he didn't actually eat the food. He would bring the food up to his mouth. He had these big sleeves. And at the last minute, he just dropped the food into his sleeve. Like you read it, you're like, that sounds like something Myron, my seven-year-old would make up. Eight-year-old, sorry. Seven, seven-year-old. Yeah, eight, wait a second, 2013. He's seven. That's like something my, Myron, my seven-year-old would make up. Like it's just insane. You're like, really? So one side, they, they denied his divinity. The other side, they denied his humanity. So you can understand why people would be getting a little bit confused. And what happened was this, out of this, what you believe will become what you live, what you'll be living. So the one group, the Ebionites, they became legalists. And if rules and what you eat and what you don't eat are the key to getting closer to God, if you wanna get closer and closer, what does that mean you need more of? rules and things you do and do not eat. And eventually what happens to you is you just have way too many rules and way too much stuff and it crushes you because you know you can't actually do it. So it was crushing these people. The other side, the docetists said this, well, what really matters is our spirit. That this thing right here, it's just a container. Jesus didn't have one of these containers. He was 100% spirit. So what you do with this container, you can trash your container and God doesn't care. He just cares about your spirit. So guess what they started to do? Trash their container, typically with sexual junk. So you got these two just crazy groups and they're infiltrating the church 
and John deals with both of them. That's why this, these verses, they almost read painfully. We saw, we saw, we, right? Because John is dealing with both of them in this first little section. And here's what he's doing. Number one, he's dealing with the idea that Jesus wasn't, wasn't man. And so verse one, he says this, we heard him, we've seen him, we looked upon him, we touched him with our hands. We grabbed the hold of him, he was flesh. He is not an emanation of an emanation of an emanation which they believed. He's not a guy that didn't leave footprints in the sand. He was 100% man. Do you know that? That God the Son at the incarnation when he becomes Jesus is 100% man, fully man. This was huge for me because I don't know if it's my upbringing or maybe just my own kind of personality, but I had a lot of docetic tendencies in my life. So I'd read the story of Jesus and I would see how he brilliantly responded to a situation. Had just the right words for somebody. Right actions. Healed people. And I, and I knew, yeah, he's, he's a man, but, but he's God. How hard can it be, right? I, I kind of thought of Jesus like this, like Clark Kent. He's still Superman. He's still bulletproof. He still can run faster than a speeding locomotive. He can still have x-ray vision and super hearing, right? He just has a disguise on. He's got some glasses on. No one can tell he's Superman now, right? And that's the way I thought about Jesus. Yeah, he's got the disguise on, but he's still God. How hard can it be? And then I started reading the story of Jesus more and more and more. And what I found was, wait a second. Jesus gets tired. Wait a second. He gets hungry. And the key was, in Matthew 26 at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus gets depressed to the point of being suicidal, of wanting to die. And I thought, well, that's, that's not very God-like. And what I realized is this, that's wrong. This idea that, that Jesus was still God, you know, and just rip off his shirt and he's got a giant G underneath there. No, he was fully human. You read the Old Testament prophecies, especially Isaiah about Jesus and about the filling of Jesus by the Spirit. Here's, here's what I found. Jesus, what he did, he did as a full human through the empowering work of God's Spirit. That Jesus was the first and only fully obedient, Spirit-filled human to have ever lived. Now, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. I used to be, read the story of Jesus and be like, well, I could never do that. Well, he's God, you know, of course he can do that, but I can't. That's not the right way to read the story of Jesus. What John is gonna tell us in his epistle is you should be reading the story of Jesus and saying, yeah, yes. That may be a better analogy. It's not Superman, Clark Kent. A better analogy would be Bruce Banner, right? Who's Bruce Banner? A normal dude, right? Until every once in a while, what happens to him? the Hulk comes out. That's probably a better analogy because Jesus, normal dude. But you go to the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, what happens? Boom, something comes out of him. And the disciples are like, whoa, what was that? That was this divinity, if you would, in that moment coming out. But Jesus lived as a full human, obedient, filled with God's spirit. 
And then Jesus says this. He says, what I did, you guys should be doing. Look at John chapter 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. People argue all the time, what does that mean? What does greater works mean? Does it mean we do more? Does it mean I get to do more? Does it collectively the church means more? I don't know. It just means Jesus says, you can do greater works. It's real simple to me. And what's amazing is the people that he said, you guys are gonna do greater works than me. It's called the disciples who would run from him, betray him, deny him, right? Be confused by him, doubt him. They were a bunch of confused cowards. But somehow this group of confused cowards are transformed into the people that write the book of Acts and turn the world upside down. Now, what happened to them? What was it that changed them from from Bruce Banners into superheroes? What was it? Well, it's Pentecost, chapter two of Acts, right? They're huddled, still scared, still worrying about everything until Acts chapter two, God's spirit fills them and they are transformed into the kind of people that turn the world upside down. It's amazing to me. Acts chapter five, they get the snot kicked out of them. Like we can't even imagine. They would have been whipped with a cat of nine tails. These long leather whips, metal, glass, lead balls embedded into the leather meant to shred your back. That's what it's meant to do. Hit with it 39 times. They leave that beating and it says they praised God that they're worthy to suffer that way. They're leaving that high-fiving each other like, yeah, that was awesome. Look at my back. What do you mean? You can see my backbone. How cool is that? Like what in the world happened to them? They were filled with God's spirit. It transformed them into the kind of people that when they would speak, people would believe. Transformed them into the kind of people that they took everything that they owned and they sold it to help people out. That's, that's what happened to them. The, the kind of people that were able to live in peace and unity with other people. Like it's, it's just unbelievable. The kind of people that can write the book of Acts. Okay, that's it. So you and I, we're supposed to look like Jesus. He is our example. What he did was he did fully as a human, empowered by God's spirit. So Philippians says this, when the incarnation happened, God the son took his powers, put them in his back pocket and left them there until after the resurrection. Read Philippians 2, 6 and 7. It's called the kenosis or the emptying. He emptied himself and lived as a full human. And then he says, you guys can do this too. And for me, the book of Acts is the proof that you can do the same works that I'm doing. And John lived the book of Acts. And that's why he's saying right now, trust me, guys. I touched him. I saw him. I heard him. He's 100% man. That right now, right now, a five foot five Jewish carpenter is running the universe that Jesus, Jesus never loses his humanity. He stays a high priest for eternity. When he became man, he stayed man. He didn't get to lose it, he stayed man. He was born 
lived, died, resurrected into a new kind of indestructible humanity, no doubt, that you and I are destined for, but he stays a man. And if you're not shocked when you think about God and the Trinity and God the Son and the Incarnation, you're not thinking rightly because it is shocking. It should short-circuit your mind. So number one, John says this, Jesus, Jesus is man. 100%, we touched, we saw, we felt him. But he doesn't stop there. Number two, he says, he's also God. He's divine. And he has these three statements that are sprinkled in here. And anyone who knows the Bible goes, oh my goodness, he's saying Jesus is God. The first one is that which was from the beginning. The second one is the word of life, the logos. And the third one is Jesus is called by John, the eternal life. Each one of those is pointing to his divinity. So first is from the beginning. Where do you see the word beginning in the Bible? Genesis 1.1, right? Which says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. God is Elohim, plural unity. The Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, creates everything. And just so that we don't confuse this, the New Testament picks this idea up as well, Colossians 1.16. Now look how painfully Paul does this so no one can make a mistake. For by him, all things were created. Couldn't he just stop right there? No, he created everything. He doesn't. Why? Because he knew there'd be people down the road that would try to say, no, no, Jesus didn't do it. So painfully, Paul just says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. What does that include? Everything. Visible and invisible. That is material and spiritual. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Again, all things were created through him and for him. It's like Paul is, listen, there's no wiggle room here. If you believe the Bible, then part of that belief is Jesus created everything. Now, if Jesus created everything that's been created, what can't Jesus be? Created. Because then he wouldn't have created everything. Does that make sense? So right here, it's telling us Jesus is the creator of everything, which makes him God. So this little phrase, John is saying, look it, he created everything. Number two phrase is this phrase, word of life. The word word in the Greek is logos. Now, if you're familiar with John's writings, which these guys would have been, you know he wrote five books. He wrote the three epistles, Revelation, and he also wrote a gospel. And in the gospel, he introduces Jesus and his favorite term is Lagos, the word. So look at John 1.1, the beginning of his gospel. It's very similar to this one. In the beginning was the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's John saying, Jesus is divine. He is God. Well, a number of years ago, I was in my front yard, and my house is off a driveway, off a driveway, off a driveway. So if a car pulls up to my house, they're either lost and wanting to be shot, or they are coming to my house, right? So I'm out there working. Up pulls this car, and I'm kind of looking at it, and it pulls up, 
and these people get out that I do not know, but they're dressed in a fashion that I know Jehovah's Witnesses, right? So I try to hide behind my, sh- my shovel handle. Now I'm skinny, but not quite that skinny. So the guy gets out and he's like, hello, friend. I'm like, wow, what a greeting. Okay, we'll see if we end up friends. We'll see. So next hour, we just start talking. If you don't know, Jehovah's Witnesses are anti-Trinitarian, meaning they're like the Ebionites. They don't believe that Jesus was God, that he's just a man that was obedient and because of his obedience, or some of them believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel, depending on kind of their, there's a wiggle room in there. So anyways, he's not God, he's created, okay? So we get to talking and we're talking and talking and talking. And finally, we came to this verse because they brought it up. And they have a translation of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation, translated in 1981. And what they do is this. This verse, instead of saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, they add in one little word. And it says, and the word was a little g, God. They add in the word a. So I said, hey, that's interesting that you'd say that. I said, because my Bible, ESV, doesn't have that little a in it. And I said, here's what's really interesting to me. There are hundreds of English translations, thousands of translations of the Bible into different languages in the world. Do you know that not a single other translation outside of the New World Translation, your Bible, not a single other translation adds in that little word A right there. Now that's a massive change. Takes Jesus from being God to Jesus being just a created thing. So I'm sure since your translation is the only one of the thousand translations, you can tell me why you would add that little A in there. Please tell me. And the guy said, well, I don't really know why we do that. I said, I'll tell you why. Because I just written a paper for seminary on it. Happened to be providentially. I said, well, let me tell you. I said, the Greek here, there is no article A in there. It doesn't exist in the Greek. All right. So that's why no other translation is done. But I will give you There are times, thin as they may be, that you can look at a phrase and find another spot where an A has been added and do that same thing here. I'll give you that. But I said, here's how and why no other translation has done that because context always drives meaning. I gave this illustration. I said, let's suppose my daughter comes home from a date with Bill. If your name is Bill here, I apologize, right? So she comes home and I say, hey, sweetie, How did your date with Bill go? And she replies, Bill is a dog. What I then say, oh, what breed is he? Golden Retriever, Boxer, Scottish Terrier, what? No, right? Because I know what she's saying. Because context always drives meaning. I said, here's why no one has ever done that. Because if you keep reading, read verse three. What does verse three say? All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Again, painfully, like I am making a point here that Jesus is not created. I said, that's the reason no one has ever added that little A in there except for the New World Translation. At that point, the guy looked at me and said, we don't meet people like you very often. (laughs) And we need to leave. I said, bye. And they have not been back. I think I'm now blacklisted. John is saying, word of life. He's the logos. He is the created word. When in the beginning, God said, let there be light, the voice was the voice 
of God the Son. That's what he's saying. He is eternal, the word of life. Well, Matt, what does it matter? You know, it's just semantics, isn't it? No, it's not. No, it's not. Because here's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do and other cults do to Jesus. Jesus just becomes a fall guy. Like God knows, hey, there's this thing I gotta deal with, sin, so what am I gonna do? I suppose I'll create a being and he'll take the penalties for the sins. Oh, that'll be a great thing. Instead of God saying, no, I will pay the price. That's giantly different, isn't it? I'll try to give an illustration of this. So we have elder meetings every Tuesday at 6 a.m. So we're here in an elder meeting, we're busy discussing something, and all of a sudden, in through the window crashes a grenade and boom, it bounces right on the table. All the other elders are paralyzed in fear, except for me. I know exactly what to do, how to save the elders from certain death. I grab Chad Hansen and I throw him on the bomb. <laughs> Boom, it rips him apart. And I look at the elders and say, look how much I love you. I saved your lives. What would they say to me? You're a monster. If you truly loved us, you would have jumped on the grenade and taken the bomb. That's what happens when Jesus no longer is God. God creates a fall guy and throws him on the bomb. Instead of true love, Emmanuel, I will come because I love my creation so much. And I will take the blast of the law and sin and death and absorb it on your behalf. That's what happens. So John is saying, he is God. And then lastly, eternal life. The eternal life. Have you ever heard Jesus referred to as the eternal life? Only John does this. And there's a long argument. I won't try to make it. It's Greek. It's the way that John uses these phrases that no doubt when he says the eternal life, he is saying that is how I'm describing Jesus. That Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He is eternal life. And the promise of the good news is this to you and me. I'll give you eternal life. That's the promise that Jesus makes. I am eternal life, and I will take of my eternal life, and I'll give it to you. Do you know you need eternal life? Do you know you need it? Don't you realize you're falling apart? So I'm 49 years old right now. When I was 20 and 30, I just thought I am immortal. At 49, I don't think that way anymore. Like stuff, like my feet hurt all the time now. I'm like, what in the world is that? You're supposed to be stepped on. How can you hurt? This is just not right, right? Like, I just know the older you get, the more you know, I'm just falling apart. I am totally falling apart. If you're my age, 49 and above, you already know it. If you're young, it's coming for you. There's a day where you will not have the energy to suck your gut anymore. You'll just let it all hang out. I don't care anymore. It's, yeah, it's coming, okay? We all know if you don't yet, you're falling apart. And the closer you get, the more perishing that happens to you, here's the good thing that happens. You put less trust in this world, less trust in this age, because you know this age is perishing. It's what it is. And I need, I need eternal life. So how do you and I get eternal life? How do you get it? There's these great verses in the Bible. Ephesians 1.11 says this. It says that eternal life is an inheritance. 
How do you get an inheritance? Do, do you do work for it? Mm-mm. How do you get an inheritance? Somebody else earns it, and then they die to give it to you. That's how you get an inheritance. Somebody else earns it, and they die to give it to you. Jesus earned it. He is the eternal life, and he dies to give it to you and me, right? The Bible says John three sixteen. Classic. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. Life that doesn't end, and it's a gift. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It's grace through faith. Or lastly, Jesus is asked, what do we need to do to do the works of God? What do we need to do to get this eternal life? What do we need to do? And Jesus replies, believe on the one the Father has sent. Not the Ebionites, all kinds of rules and regulations, do all this stuff, eat all this right food. No, what is it? Believe on the one that the Father has sent. That's how. Right, so how do you get eternal life? Admit you're perishing. I'm perishing. I've messed this life up. I've sinned and fallen short. I've ruined this thing. You have faith. You know what faith is, I think, more and more? Faith is a desperation. Faith is realizing how dangerous the universe is apart from God. I think that's what faith is. I have to be on God's side. That's faith. I must be on his side. And then it's it's grace. It's, I need this eternal life. I need it. And by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he'll give it to me by grace. Nothing I do to deserve it. Nothing I do to earn it. And because of that, I cannot lose it. That he holds me tight. And then you just rest in him. That's the brilliance of what he's saying. You get a peace that passes understanding. I've done a lot of baptisms. One of the main things that people have said to me after being baptized Man, I just had this peace. I just had this deep peace. Why? Because you've been given eternal life. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to the table. Then we're gonna sing a song. And then after that song, you're dismissed. But if you're saying, I don't think I have this eternal life, there'll be people up here that wanna pray with you. Because yes, you can pray on your own and yes, you can receive eternal life on your own. But you know what? It's sometimes helpful to have somebody else. So in Acts chapter eight, there's this story, this Ethiopian eunuch who's trying to find eternal life and he goes to the temple and tries to get it and it doesn't work there. And he's in a chariot by himself and this guy named Philip comes and explains to him Jesus and he believes. Sometimes we need that. So there'll be people up here that would love to say, this is how you do it. This is how you get eternal life. And then just like that Ethiopian eunuch, after he believes in Jesus, he says, hey, there's water right here. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, well, you gotta take a discipleship class. And then after that, you gotta, no. (laughs) Philip says, no, let's do it. We're the same way here at Edgewater. We just believe Acts chapter eight. What prevents you from, nothing. You wanna be baptized? Let's do it. You can be baptized. That's available for you. John is saying, Grandpa John is saying, 
Jesus, the God-man, is your savior. He's the one that gives you eternal life. It's from him, okay? So every Sunday we take communion, if you don't know. And in communion, we're celebrating Jesus. We're remembering him, the God-man, who lived, died, rose to a new kind of indestructible humanity to give that same life to you and me. That's what we're celebrating. It's not about us. That we do this not to remember our sins, we do this to remember him. I think sometimes we make a mistake in communion because we start reflecting ourselves and wanting to beat ourselves up. Well, that's not remembering him. It's like this, many years ago, I did a year in Vanuatu as a missionary. And my job was we had morning worship. And my job was by 6.30, I'd prepare the elements of communion and set them out for morning worship. And one day I'd prepared it and I'd set it out and I went over during morning worship to go grab my elements and I, and I went over there and there was, there's really cute lizards in Vanuatu, the little like gecko lizards, but there was these big, nasty, they look like just, they look like little dragons. They're hideous, right? So I go over there, there's this big, just nasty, slithering lizard and he's up on the communion and he's drinking out of one of the cups. I was like, ah, I scooted him away. I did not take that cup, I took a different cup. <laughs> and I sat down and I'm like ready to take my, my communion and this is what God said you're that lizard you're that lizard and I invited you into my table that Matt it's not about you it's not about you reflecting on your sins or how bad or how evil you are it's about how good I've been that's what communion is that you remember the goodness of our Savior and so Jesus today as we partake in your broken body We have been grafted in by grace through faith. That what are the works we need to do? Believe in him. Believe in the one the Father has sent. Believe in you. I pray as the Edgewater body partakes today that we would be those whose eyes are fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. It's not about us. It's about you. And we can keep it that simple and that pure and that good. Let's eat together. And took the cup, the cup of forgiveness, the cup of sanctification, the cup of transformation, Lord, that you saved us, but you also want to change us into your image that we would be the kind of spirit-filled believers that can turn the world upside down. Purify us. Cleanse us. Make us pure, spotless. We pray, Lord, that we would realize that your forgiveness is unconditional the way that you see us now is through your son. Let's reason together, though our sins were like scarlet, they have been made white as snow, the prophet Isaiah declares, that we've been robed in your righteousness, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become 
the righteousness of God. We cannot improve on that. What you've done for us, we can't improve on it. May we drink that security. May we drink that cleansing. May we drink that transformation. May it be sunk deep into our hearts and create in us cleanliness, change of desire, wanting your way, not our way. Let's drink together. Amen. Would you stand for one final song?